Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. This episode we have Sarah slowly being digested in So You've Been Eaten. Ruel stops to smell the roses in Floriferous. Jose is causing trouble in Mythic Mischief. And I'm discussing Fjords, old and new. But first, here's Mason with a few reflections. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about board games. First off, it's been a while since you heard from me for a lot of reasons that I won't go into here. All personal stuff, no drama or anything. And second of all, this is the last time I'll appear on the 5 by. Again, no drama, just personal stuff. Well, personal stuff and the slow unraveling of what interested me originally about board games and more specifically about board game media. When we started the show five years ago, I felt like we were entering a pretty saturated space with something fresh and interesting. In a landscape littered with three-plus-hour shows featuring four people talking over each other, all grasping for that last little bit of oxygen and listener attention, we were looking to turn the page on something that I thought was a little calmer, a lot shorter, and certainly more objective. I think that we've achieved that, and I'm very proud of the work that we've done here. I never expected to be a person who wrote about games, but I ended up being one anyway. The show came at a time in my life when I really didn't have much else going on. I'd stepped away from music for a number of years already, and my professional life was a bit chaotic. The board game community and board game media became a low-input creative outlet for me, a place to tinker around and talk through some interesting ideas and be mildly creative without a lot of commitment. In 2019, I made some big professional changes that ultimately made me a lot happier, but that radically reduced our gross income. Don't worry, we're fine. But that change really made me take a look at what I was spending on games, and frankly, it was shocking. After a lot of thought, a pretty big purge, and some consideration about the amount of our income that was going towards what was originally just a silly little hobby, I realized that a significant portion of the board game community, and in turn, board game media, relies heavily on nerds with excesses of discretionary income. Over the years that we've done the show, I've watched the price tag of Kickstarter projects creep higher and higher. This has nothing to do with inflation, and I'm not talking about the increased shipping costs over the last several years. I'm talking about the base price of what you were getting in an average game five years ago versus now. I am perfectly happy to say that there's not a single game on planet Earth that is worth over $100 to me. There's a directly inverse relationship in my interest of what's hot and what's new, and the ever-climbing prices of box full of adult toys and plastic crap that people sell as games. Are some of those games good? Yeah, probably. Maybe. I don't know. I don't really care either. The pandemic rolling through pretty much permanently sealed the coffin on my interest in ever going to a convention again, which puts me in the position of not really playing new games ever anymore. If you go back over the last couple of years, almost everything I've covered here on the show has either been something that was available to play online, something that wasn't really a board game but might be of some mild board game interest, or a card game that I just learned for free. The reality, from where I sit now, is that I no longer see much utility in my life for acquiring or even learning new commercially produced games. The outlay of funds in proportion to the enjoyment that I derive is completely out of balance for me. I'm still friends with a few board game designers, and I wish them the best of luck, especially my buddy Daniel Newman from New Mill Industries. Daniel and Tony's philosophy of publishing and distribution is actually one of the few that aligns with my own worldview. Ditto for Amabel and Mary Holland over at Hollandspiel and Todd Sanders from Aaron Nothingness Press. All very strange people making interesting games because they simply can't not create art. I'm not sure how a person could possibly keep up with even a fraction of a percentage of new games that come out every year. I find it fairly easy to keep up with the movies that come out, and I've largely switched my interest back to film and music. When a new movie comes out, all I have to do is watch it. I don't have to buy it, I don't have to set it up, I don't have to learn it, and I don't have to store it. 
Film requires nothing of me other than experiencing it, and I find that significantly preferable at this point in my life. With music, the stress in my life had all but closed the door on being in bands, which I was constantly for the better part of 20 years. Picking up again with writing, recording, and performing music has taken up a significant amount of the free time that I had been devoting to board games. I'm not making the case for you getting out of board games. If you have the disposable income in the storage space to constantly buy and play new games, more power to you. But I started to feel like the number of games we owned was actually an impediment to my enjoyment of them. You know what's really fun? Ticket to Ride. We played it last night. Still love it. You know what's not fun? Having a big stack of titles that I bought on sale and haven't gotten around to yet. I guess maybe a lot of people like that feeling of an unplayed backlog, but I don't. It stresses me out. I also don't want to watch other people play board games on the internet, but apparently a lot of you do. I will never stream anything, and I will never watch your stream. Please don't at me trying to explain the phenomenon. I have zero interest in it, and it's not something even a very persuasive argument is going to change my mind about. I will never pivot to video. I don't have TikTok. I don't post Insta Reels, and I'm certainly not interested in cute or funny or relatable board game content. I don't even like the word content, and I'm certainly not interested in being a content creator. Gross. So as we part ways, I wish you well. I hope that you can find fulfillment in something other than consumer products. I hope you can find ways to connect with the people you care about without buying expensive interactive toys. I hope you can find a sense of self outside of fandoms and niche hobbies. I hope you can find a way to care for yourself and others without monetizing your interests and relationships. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Discount Compost. You can also listen to my folk band, the Harper Valley Hypocrites. You can find us at harpervalleyhypocrites.bandcamp.com or on social media at Harper Valley Hip. That's Harper Valley H-I-P. Thanks for listening to The Five Bye, and I'll see you at the movies. The premise of So You've Been Eaten is simple. A miner enters the literal belly of a literal beast. You can play the miner and try to collect valuable gems from the beast's gut, or you can play the beast and try to digest the miner. I love games with interesting concepts, and quick two-player or solo games, and humor in games, and the work of Scott Alms, Quan Chai Moria, and Luda Creations, which all adds up to So You've Been Eaten hitting pretty much all of my buttons. Published in 2022, So You've Been Eaten can be played by zero to two players. You heard that right, zero to two players. In a two-player game, one person plays the miner and the other plays the beast. You can also play solo as the miner against a hibernating beast, or as the beast against a robot miner. And you can run the two algorithms, let the robot miner and the sleeping beast battle it out while you just roll dice and move things around. I've played a bunch of solo so you've been eaten, and tried zero player once. Which, by the way, was an amusing novelty, but I probably won't play that way again. With no active player, I just wasn't invested in what was happening. In any case, what I have not played is two-player. I actually got this game for the two-player, but I played solo first to learn the rules, and once I did, I realized the two-player rules were more confrontational than what we like. We prefer games where both players are trying to do the same thing more or less, and whoever does it first or best wins. Head-to-head -head conflict like So You've Been Eaten isn't really our jam. Your mileage may vary, and I'd love to hear another 5 by review from someone who does get into the two-player game. Gameplay in So You've Been Eaten is quick and engaging. The miner rolls dice and does stuff in the digestive tract, which is a row of cards. The beast fills the digestive tract with cards that will attack the miner. I've played as both the miner and the beast, and even against a robot opponent, the beast is basically reactive. 
The miner has a range of actions they can take based on the dice rolls. They're collecting gems, collecting tools, rearranging cards in the track to make it less dangerous. The beast, on the other hand, is creating conditions in the digested track that will be damaging to the miner and hoping the miner doesn't catch on in time to avert them. Each card in the track has a picture of a bacterium, and every turn, the bacterium pictured on the first card attacks the miner. There are four colors, and if any of the colors gets to attack level four, the beast wins immediately. The miner can manipulate the track by removing cards or moving them back and forth, but there's no mechanism to remove a bacteria attack once it's happened. This puts a time limit on the game of 13 rounds max, but I've never had a game go that far. Usually it ends by either the miner collecting all eight gems or the deck running out. If that happens, the miner and the beast count up points to see who wins. Running out of cards is an example of how funny this game is. The rulebook says that if the deck runs out, the miner then exits the back end of the digested track, and this is called ending number two. Okay, I'm 12. I thought that was hilarious. Poop jokes aside, the very concept of So You've Been Eaten is funny. I mean, I can imagine an alternate world where this is some kind of grimdark horror survivalist game, but I live in this world where So You've Been Eaten is colorful and bright and clever. The rulebook is written as an employee handbook and is full of witty jokes about the working conditions of the hapless miner. For instance, the miner can collect tools that help in various ways, and a sidebar in the rulebook explains that these tools are all that remain of previous employees who failed and were digested. The rulebook reminds me quite a bit of Galaxy Trucker, but only in humor quality. So You've Been Eaten's rulebook is much easier to use. Conceptually, So You've Been Eaten also reminds me quite a bit of the original Vast the total asymmetry of player actions and goals, and just the idea of pitting an explorer-slash-looter against an environment trying to destroy them. The cave in Vast and the beast in So You've Been Eaten aren't that similar in terms of the specific actions they take, and the games themselves are quite different in terms of length and weight. So You've Been Eaten is much lighter and much easier to pick up, but thematically, I see a real connection there. I don't have any serious criticisms of So You've Been Eaten. It is heavily luck-based, what with the dice rolling and the card draws. The miner needs to collect eight gems, and there are only two cards for each gem in the deck. I had a game where both cards for a gem were in the last few cards, so they didn't come out until the deck ran out, making it impossible to get that color. You can still win on points, although when that happened, I did not win on points. I did learn in that game to keep better track of how low the deck was getting, and when should I start working on points instead of gems. With the quick play time, lightweight, and reliance on luck, So You've Been Eaten won't be for everyone, but I enjoy it quite a bit. It's a quick, funny solo or two-player game about dead-end jobs and about eating or being eaten. And that's So You've Been Eaten. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other funny solo games, then I really want to hear from you. It's a lovely day outside, so you decide to take a stroll in the garden, the perfect setting to collect flowers, sculptures, stones, and more. And now it's time for you and your fellow gardeners to walk, pick, and make arrangements to become the best in the land. Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's look at Floriferous, a game by Steve Finn and Eduardo Bereff, with illustrations by Clementine Campardo. Floriferous was published in 2021 by Pencil First Games, who sent me a review copy. In Floriferous, one to four players walk in a garden and collect sets of flowers and other garden-related items. The garden is represented by multiple rows and columns of cards, 
each depicting a flower, arrangement, sculpture, or desire. On your turn, you'll perform two actions. First, pick a card in the column to the right of your gardener pawn. Place it face up in front of you, along with any stones that were on it. Second, move your gardener to the spot where the card was. Once all gardeners have reached the end of the garden, moving left to right, it's the end of day one. Players will collect any bounties they've earned, refill the garden, and begin day two, this time moving right to left. Then they'll collect bounties again, and day three begins moving left to right again. After three days, the player with the most points wins. I love many of Steve Finn's designs with Pencil First Games. Herbaceous, The Whatnot Cabinet, and Sunset Overwater are all uniquely themed, feature streamlined gameplay, and provide the satisfying feeling of much longer and bigger games. Floriferous might be the best of the Finn and Pencil First partnership. Like other titles in the Pencil First lineup, this is a game that is much meatier than implied by its brief 20 to 30 minute playtime. Everything in Floriferous is tied in beautifully within its theme. The game's mechanisms and scoring float smoothly together. Pick a spot to go to, take a garden card, and place your garden token there. Easy peasy, right? Not really. First, not all of the garden cards are face up. Depending on the player count, you'll place certain cards face down during setup. This imperfect information gives the game a bit of a push-your-luck element. Do you take the sure thing that will score you a point or two, or do you go for the face-down card in hopes of that big score? And second, thanks to its King Domino-style turn order, your decision is even more interesting. Because each turn's order is determined from the top to bottom row, sometimes you might choose a card that doesn't benefit you immediately, but sets you up for first choice on your next turn, allowing you to take that juicy point-scoring flower. Or maybe you just want to deny your opponent that gorgeous yellow lily since you know they can use it to score the day's bounty. Denial drafting has never been found in a more relaxed setting. The set collection scoring has several Dr. Finn-style twists that keep the game fresh and replayable. Walking in the garden, you'll find stones, and each pair will score you a point. If you end up with the most stones at the end of the game, you receive the cup of tea, which is worth two points. Arrangement cards score points depending on how many conditions are met. For example, if you can collect cards that feature one pink flower, one mum, and one beetle, you'd score five points. No problem, but you'll score fewer points for that arrangement. Sculpture cards are based on who ends the game with the most. Three different types of desire cards score for certain flowers, colors, or bugs, and also whether or not you have the same or different types in these categories. You'll find the desire cards at the bottom of each column of flowers. These provide end game scoring, but since they're at the bottom, you'll be choosing last on your next turn. And because any remaining cards in the garden are discarded at the end of the day, you'll often want to scoop up a desire card or two or else you'll lose out on that extra scoring. Of course, you'll have to pay attention to what you pick from the garden in order to meet all the requirements on your desire cards. And will they match up with those bounties? You're racing to secure those bounties since you'll score more points the faster you can meet the requirements. These could be the types of flowers you've collected or any bugs on those flowers, if any. The solo game is yet another fine adaptation of the multiplayer experience by Pencil First. In Floriferous, the AI is a crow that's picking off all of the prime flowers and, like other solo modes that I enjoy, your AI opponent is controlled by a simple deck of cards. The crow will block you from certain spots and collect stones throughout the game. Anytime it gets a fourth stone, you'll have to choose and discard one of your garden or desire cards costing you points. Oh, that pesky crow can really mess with your scores. I hesitate to call Floriferous a filler, which implies a short and light game, when in fact it's a tension-filled affair that never outstays its welcome. Don't let the easygoing nature theme fool you. From the very first turn, you'll be agonizing over where to go and whether or not your move is helping your opponents more than you.
Thanks again to Pencil First Games for the copy of Floriferous. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Floriferous. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Let's take a quick trip down memory lane as we reminisce about what it was like when we were in grade school. I remember wandering those halls, trying to stay out of trouble, using your magic powers to make sure our rival factions get caught up by the mysterious but ever-present faculty members in order to cement your faction as the coolest in school? <laughs> yeah, those are the days. Today we're going to be taking a look at Mythic Mischief. Mythic Mischief is a one of four player abstract strategy game designed by Max Anderson, Zach Dixon, and Austin Harrison. Published by Four Game Studios. In Mythic Mischief, you play as one of the different factions that attend the Mythic Manor, and you're going to be using all the tools at your disposal to avoid the Tome Master in the library, while at the same time ensuring that your rival factions get caught and get sent to the Headmaster. When playing Mythic Mischief, each player is going to have their own faction board, up to three minis, dice to keep track of their action points, and some special upgrade tokens. The game is split into two halves, before lunch and after lunch. In each half, the Tome Master is going to be moving around the library from objective to the next objective in the shortest route possible. On players' turns, they're going to use their special abilities to move their pieces, potentially move their opponents, use their abilities to move bookcases around the library, and use special abilities that they only have access to. At the end of the turn when the Tome Master moves, you hope that the Tome Master catches one of your rivals and scores you a point. But if the Tome Master catches you, you end up losing a point. The game ends when either the Tome Master has reached all of their objectives in the after-lunch phase, or when one of the factions gets 10 points. Listeners of the podcast might have heard me talk about four game studios in the past when I discussed one of their earlier games, Moonraker. And much like with that game, they took a type of game that normally doesn't excite me and wrapped it up in an awesome theme and gave us a great package. When looking at Mythic Mischief, each faction feels super thematic in the way that they implement their powers. You have the Frankenstein monsters that are more about brute force and shoving things and throwing each other and their opponents out of the way. But on the other side of the board, you have the mages who aren't as brawny and use their magic to be able to teleport around the library and swap places with other people. Although Mythic Mischief does have an asymmetric focus, the asymmetry doesn't make the game harder to learn. The game itself is pretty easy to teach, and although every faction has their own set of rules, they all have the same four concepts. They each have a way to move themselves, they each have a way to move others, they each have a way to move bookshelves, and they each have a way to distract other rival factions. Each of them also does have a very unique power, but movement and distraction are pretty much the same across all the factions. So if you're going to end up playing the game and you want to try out a different faction or two, you really only have to learn two or three new rules every time you switch, which I think encourages people to try out all the different factions in the game, instead of scaring people into thinking they have to learn a whole new game every time they want to try out a new faction. I do have to mention that at the time of recording, there are three factions that are expansion factions that uh, you can add. There's witches, there's trolls, and there's 
ghosts. I believe those factions come with a Kickstarter copy of the game, but they do not come with the retail copy of the game. But adding these factions, again, adds more asymmetry and adds more combinations of games to the explore. I play this game at all player counts, except for Solo, which I'm not going to touch on in this review, but I tend to prefer this game at two or four players. At two players, it's a lot of trying to outthink your opponent. The scores haven't been super high, and it always goes to the end of the after-lunch round, while four-player games tend to be a little bit more chaotic, which I tend to enjoy. Three players isn't terrible, but it's not my preferred player count. In a three-player game, two players will team up against one other player, and pretty much the rules are the same as far as like the two teams go. For some players, this is kind of a turnoff. They don't like feeling like they're ganging up on someone or, or even being ganged up on which I totally understand, so I will probably prefer to play this at 2 or 4, but I'll never turn down anyone asking to play this game. Much like Moonraker before it, this game is shooting up my list as far as favorite games, and I don't see it coming back down anytime soon. If you're interested in a quick and easy strategy game that still offers you tons of depth and some asymmetry, Mythic Mischief is an easy recommendation. I'm Jose. And you can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth, or you can find me on Twitter at SirBearsworth1. Yeah, someone beat me to it. Stop on by and say hi and let me know what you've been playing. Summer of 2006, I was at Misty Mountain Games with some friends, trying to decide on what game to get next. We'd already played Carcassonne and Ticket to Ride. With dozens of games coming out each year and being new to the hobby, there were just so many choices. But Caesar and Cleopatra had already flopped for Anna and myself, so I knew this next game was critical. Isis and Osiris, that weird bean game, then a friend recommended Fjords. And while Carcassonne was already a huge hit with us, setting off a love affair of tile-laying games that is still going strong, so why not? Indeed, this ended up being an excellent choice, but I suppose I'm jumping ahead. Originally published in 2005 by Hansem Gluck and by designer Franz Benno DeLong, Fjords is a small but clever two-player game of placing tiles and claiming land. The game is played in those exact two phases. First players are taking face-down tiles, then turning them over and placing them to create the land. The tiles are land, mountains, and water, and each tile must touch two prior tiles, and all features on that tile must match. After placing a tile, the player may then decide if they wish to place one of their huts on that tile. Huts may be placed on the tile that you just laid, but not prior tiles, and must be placed on land, not mountains or water. But it would behoove you to think about your placement as you want to create choke points for the second land claiming phase. This second phase starts once all the tiles have been placed. If you've put out all three of your huts, that's great. If not, well, that's unfortunate, as you're claiming less tile and have fewer moves to make. Players now take their turns building out from their huts by placing wooden discs. Discs may be placed next to your hut or one of your existing discs, and only one piece is allowed per tile. This means from a practical sense, you're racing to build walls to block your opponents out of areas so that they can't get to them. Discs can't go over mountains or through water. So if you can block off a group of tiles, well, then you can come back and fill those in later, knowing they're safe. Once all tiles in contention have been claimed, then all the tiles no one else can reach are claimed, and in the end, the player who's claimed the most land wins. I don't know if yours was the first game to use this mechanism, but it's certainly been used many times since in games like Blue Lagoon. 
but I find the simplicity of Fjord's implementation to be perfect for me and my family. Which brings me to the new Fjords. When I heard that Fjords was getting a new printing with new art by Beth Sobel and updated rules by Phil Walker Harding, who is frankly an amazing designer, I was thrilled. With four players now available, I could play with the whole family. There was so much to be excited about. Well, all I can say is be careful what you wish for. For those who don't know, I'm a very conservative guy. Sure, I get excited about new things, but when they don't live up to what I'm used to, well, then I get grumpy. And I really dislike this new production. They put a spot finish on all the water, which just looks so weird shining next to the mat land and mountains. The new farmer pieces are so intricate with their pitchforks, but that also means fragile and several of mine have broken pitchforks. I miss the cleanness of the old tokens. And while I've looked at the expansion, frankly, I like the simplicity of the base game. Even playing multiplayer wasn't as enjoyable to me as two-player games. With the original two-player, I miss knowing what tiles are coming out so that I can plan ahead, knowing that Anna's doing the same. I miss the original so much that I tracked down an old copy of it again. And I'm sure that's hypocritical of me, as I love all the mini expansions in, say, 8-Minute Empire Legends. I feel they really make that game. And I bet had I played this version first, I would have been all over it. Or maybe I've just changed as a gamer, as frankly, I find so many of the quote-unquote modern games overly complicated for the enjoyment I get out of them. Do I recommend Fjords? Absolutely. Do I recommend the new edition? If this is your first time getting and playing this game, absolutely. Will the internet likely be flooded by people complaining that it's too simple? Likely. But, and while your mileage may vary, simplicity is what I'm looking for these days. Speaking of simplicity, I just wanted y'all to know that this is my final sign-off for the 5 by. When Mason, Ruth, Stephanie, Lindsay, and I started working on this show back in the fall of 2016, I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that the types of podcast-dominating board games weren't what I wanted to listen to, and I'd hoped if I made what I wanted to hear, then maybe a few other people would feel the same. I figured if we were lucky, we'd get maybe a dozen listeners. The outpouring of support from all of y'all has gone well beyond anything I could have imagined, and I truly appreciate that. I have loved working on this show and with the original team and the wonderful people who have joined us along the way, and I'm confident in those whose hands I'll be leaving the show and look forward to hearing what they do with it and supporting them along the way. So, for the last time, this has been Mike for the 5 by. If you care to reach me, you can find me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. You've been listening to The Five By, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here on The Five By and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fivebygames. Thanks for listening.